London-born drummer Simon Phillips has had a destiny for success. From the very beginning of his career, his musical mode of operation has been methodical, technical, and well-planned. But that doesn't say that good fortune hasn't come his way. After the unfortunate passing of Toto drummer Jeff Porcaro, he was the only drummer to receive the call in 1992 to fill the open slot. He took the job, and the rest is history. But Toto hasn't encompassed Simon's career. His collaborations with Tears for Fears, The Who, Pete Townsend, Judas Priest, Jeff Beck, Mick Jagger, Stanley Clark, Mike Oldfield, and many others has garnered him a discography to envy. His touring life has not only allowed him to play with Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, and Steve Winwood, but it ultimately led him to enter the world of producing and engineering. In 2009, Phillips joined forces with keyboardist Philippe Sace and bassist Pino Palladino to form the instrumental jazz-funk rock trio PSP, who toured Europe through 2010, spotlighting the talents of each musician. Phillips' trademark has always been his precise and creative style of drumming, and it's his passion for quality and perfection that has paved a road of success for him. Inside MusicCast is proud to kick off the new year with our first guest of 2011, Simon Phillips. Hey, Simon, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah. Welcome. Hey, listen, Simon, uh, please know, first of all, that uh, you've made our audience very, very happy by joining us today on Inside Music Cast because most of them, uh, and like us, me and Rick, we've followed your work very closely over the years. And so we're all interested in very much uh, getting to know you better with a little chat. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, pleasure. No, yeah. uh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have such a very interesting story. You know, even uh, we all, everybody really knows the whole breadth of your work. But, uh, you know, I, I always like to go back to at least just a little bit of history because I know that our listeners want to know this. But more importantly than you just being born into music, if you would, you got your chops, uh, you know, sitting in on on uh, on gigs and recordings. At, I mean, not just a young age, but a very, very young age because of your dad's band, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, but it wasn't just in any kind of music. It was a very interest. I find it's very interesting to know that it was a, a Dixie Land band. Uh, uh, tell me what your dad was doing back then, and how uh, you got your baptism into the <laughs> into the the music world. Well, he uh, he was running a, a band, a nine piece mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, sometimes for the recording sessions, he'd add a couple of uh, uh, people. He'd add a, a horn player. Uh, an extra horn, so there would be um, uh, alto, tenor, and baritone, mm-hmm. uh, or, alt, or, or two altos and a tenor, depending on the arrangement. Um, and he'd add a banjo player. Um, but generally, it was a nine-piece for the road band. Yeah. Um, he had he formed his first band in 1925, 
So he's be, he w- had been doing it a long time. Right. He was on tour in Europe before the war, so during the 30s. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of experience, uh, basically since jazz started, really. Right. Yeah. Um, so I grew up with, with uh, listening to the band since I was born. Yeah. Um, and the first time I sat in with the band was when I was six years old at uh, a BBC broadcast in London, and I still have the tapes. It's hilarious. Uh, and then I used to sit in with them on a New Year's Eve gig, which was close to home, from about um, eight years old onwards, really, eight, nine, ten, eleven, until I joined the band when I was 12. Yeah. You know, what, what I find interesting is how did your dad uh, get interested in, in Dixieland? Obviously, that was sort of born in the sou- southern U.S., and, and uh, you know, I guess the migration happened pretty quickly to the U.K. Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, at the time, what was happening in England was... Uh, in the 20s was still pretty safe you know dance bands still had strings uh-huh. um i'm not even sure if the bass player was plucking the bass yet you know yeah it's probably using a bow and the tuba uh-huh. was probably playing the bass part mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. um but he was influenced by uh, a lot of the american jazz greats of the time um boy my, my history is not so good no. so yeah. i'm not so sure about his <laughs> but he was a clarinet player wasn't he he was a clarinet player and yeah. he was a he was a contemporary of louis armstrong uh-huh. and uh he uh, played with with louis a couple of times actually wow. uh fats waller was also a very yeah. good friend of his um Artie shaw benny goodman right. you know they were kind of all the same uh, era yeah. um and so he was just very interested in that kind of music and wanted to bring it to uh england but he made it instead of it being a more of a trad, you know, Dixieland, where sure. it's a little bit more free for all. He actually arranged it and had very tight arrangements, which uh, were Dixieland influenced, but were more swing oriented. That's interesting. Would you ever uh, consider uh, posting any of this on your website uh, regarding to some bits and clips of? Since you talk about your dad uh, quite extensively, uh, do you uh, um, do you ever consider doing that? Um, not really, okay. but, but, but I am in the middle of, I'm trying to write a book, which is, uh, will cover, will cover his life too. Yeah. He had a, the start of a, a biography, autobiography. Yeah. Um, but true to form, uh, he left out all the bits that people want to read. Yeah. Um, he made it very, very, he was very conservative. He was also very, um, secretive. Uh, really? So... Well, he he was involved in uh, during the war in MI five and stuff. Uh-huh. So I think he just didn't want really a lot of people to know much about him. Yeah, uh, he'd probably be horrified by the internet. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and a lot of things he just left out, which made it not a very interesting read. You yeah, know? exactly. Um, so I'm trying to find out more uh, unusual things and uh, interesting stuff. But it's quite hard because you know we're dealing with quite a few years ago now exactly you know it's uh if you back away from it maybe maybe we all should be a little more afraid of this internet huh <laughs> oh I'm, i am <laughs> i well, tend to uh hide a little bit when, yeah. when it comes to sure. facebook and uh myspace and twitter yeah i, I don't know yeah exactly. I, just, uh, I, I find it just too um uh, I, you know really i just don't have the time that's really what yeah. it is yeah exactly you know, your your father unfortunately died in in seventy three, and you were sixteen at the time, mm-hmm. and um, I mean that uh, made you m- make some serious decisions about the band, right? 
yeah, I mean, it kind of fell on me, really, right. whether <laughs> the band should continue. But it, in my mind, uh, there were a couple of things. First of all, I, I wanted to go and play rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't that interested in, in, in continuing with, with the band. But aside from that, I was, I'm a bit of a purist. Without him there, it just would have been horrible. Right. Um, he, he had a very distinctive sound. Most clarinet players, it, clarinet is a pretty horrible instrument. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it, it can set in the wrong hands. It can really sound bad. <laughs> um, he had this wonderful fat sound, which I, I would say is a bit like, was a bit like Artie Shaw's sound. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, even Benny Goodman's sound was a little woody and classical. Right. Uh, but he was an incredible player and a great musician. Um, but the tone of the clarinet was not my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, Artie Shaw had that great fat sound, and, mm -hmm. and uh, my father, he had a very similar sound. Um, so he made it sound a much bigger instrument than a, than a clarinet really should be. You know? yeah. now I'm just curious, do you have any recordings of your father playing? Oh, loads, yeah. I, I have records that I played on. I played uh, on two or three of his records. That's, that's cool. Oh, I have loads of recordings. I have stuff that he's done before the war and after the war. And wow. oh, in fact, you know what? what? Somebody just discovered a movie on um, YouTube. Really? Really? It's a TV show done in the fifties, and I've never seen it before in my life. And uh, somebody, you know, just passed it on to me. I went, "Where the hell did you find this?" <laughs> Holy! God. It's pretty amazing. Really. Yeah. So you can type you can type in uh, Sid Phillips, mm -hmm. and uh, he'll come up now on YouTube. That's cool. Well, that's where I'm going to definitely do that. Hey Simon, uh, Eddie and I want to take our first break, and, and we want to take a listen to a track from a solo project of yours. And this is going back to uh, I believe 1997 from the project Another Lifetime. Uh, this is the track called Kumi Namoja.
Tell us, you know, you mentioned a second ago that, you know, obviously your passion, you, you wanted to dive into rock and roll. And tell us about your first band that you joined. You know, that was a rock band. I, you know, um, I think, what was your first record? Well, you know, actually the first thing I did in, in the rock and roll arena was uh, I joined a, a, a West End show in London called Jesus Christ Superstar. Right, that's right. That was before I did anything else. Yeah. Um, and um, I did an audition, and I was very lucky. I got the gig, mm-hmm. and there I was. And that led to everything else. Mm-hmm. That led to me doing, uh, really, to getting started doing sessions. Yeah, wow. I did more sessions than, than I, you know, I never actually joined a band. Um, there were a couple of bands I auditioned for, uh, but they kind of said I was too young to start going out on the road in the United States. Yeah. Uh, I did join a band. It was called Chopin. Mm-hmm. Um, we made a record. Grand uh, Slam, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. We were managed by Don Arden. We went out and toured with ELO, who was also managed by Don Arden. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great experience, but uh, in the end, it only lasted about six months. Obviously, you know, you're really well known for your, your double bass playing right now, your double kick. And had, had you seen, how did you grasp onto that technique? When did you actually, you know, incorporate that into your style, into, into what you do? Well, the, the, the year was 1974, but I, you know, I used to, like all, all young drummers, they, they, I used to love looking at uh, drum magazines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I love the look of a double kick. I, yeah. I, I just wondered, <laughs> what does that sound like? Mm-hmm. And at the time, the only person I'd heard playing it was Louis Belson. Mm-hmm. But funnily enough, it wasn't what I imagined two kicks should sound like. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the guy that really did it for me was um, Tommy Aldridge, Black Oak, Arkansas. Yeah. I saw him on an a Old Grey Whistle Test, which is a great uh, a music program in, in the 70s in England. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I saw him play at two 26-inch Ludwig bass drums. Right. And I, aha, now that's the way they should be played. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so really, Tommy was responsible for really influencing me. And then, of course, um, uh, Billy Carbon, when I saw him play, I thought, oh, yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I just incorporated them into recording sessions. I turned up that band, Chopin, when we started recording. Yeah. It was the first time I turned up with two bass drums. Mm-hmm. Really? And I really didn't know what to do with them. But I just kind of, uh, you know, incorporated them when, when I could. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the year 1974, and that was the first time you actually came to the United States. Is that correct? That's right. Is that when you were touring with Dana Gillespie? I joined Dana's band. I made a, a record. Uh-huh. Uh, John Porter produced it. Mm-hmm. Who's actually out. No, he just moved to uh, New Orleans, funny enough. Um, but he was in L.A. for many years. Um, so I played on that record. And then we went out on the road. And then uh, we went to New York. Uh, we were part of Main Man. Main Man was the... Um, Tony DeVries was the manager mm-hmm. who also managed David Bowie at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty amazing time to be in New York, I have to say. That's interesting. All this while you were living in London, correct? Yeah. That's interesting. Can you shed a little bit of light on uh, on playing with, with 801? Explain that for our, our listeners. Well, yeah. that, that started with um, a session I was called for or called to do by Phil Mantonera. At the beginning of 1975, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, sorry, beginning of 1976, mm-hmm. not 75, and um, out of the blue, got got this call to play with uh, uh, Phil on a record, which was called um, 
Might have been called K-Scope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not quite sure uh, which album that was now. Um, and that's where it started. And then later on that year, 76, um, he called me again and said, would you be interested in joining a band called 801? Yeah. With Panino, myself, and a couple of other guys. I've had, I said, yeah, okay, that, that sounds interesting. So we started to rehearse, and we only ever played three shows. <laughs> and the third show was recorded, and that was it. That was it. <laughs> what kind of stuff were you playing? The set list, wow. Uh, um, or at least the style. I mean, what is it? Uh... Well, that's the thing. Uh, we didn't quite know. We mm. were kind of defining a new style I a see. little. Uh-huh. We, we played some of uh, Brian Eno's material. Mm-hmm. Played some of Phil's material. We played a couple of uh, cover songs. Tomorrow Never Knows from the Beatles by the Beatles. Uh, you really got me, the Kinks. But we kind of did our own versions of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember the, a quote in Melody Maker or New Musical Express at the time when they heard the record. The quote was, "This is the future of rock and roll." Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a very interesting band that we captured the the hearts of a real cult. <laughs> interesting. Cult, and it still sells today. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, we were asking about it, but honestly, I've never heard it. Now I'm intrigued. I, I need to pick that up. It is still available, right? You said it is. It, well, it's been re-released. Okay. And also there's a new package that just came out. Phil put together a couple of years ago. Um, well, a year ago, actually, mm-hmm. with uh, the CD plus rehearsal tapes and all sorts of stuff. That's wow. neat. That's neat. I definitely have to check that out. Definitely. Hey, There's so a real, real cult following on the East Coast of the, of the States. It's amazing. Yeah, can it be, where can it be purchased? I mean, you know, do you know some outlets that are easy to, to nab that? Oh, or Amazon. Amazon, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure they have it. Well, before we got started with the interview, we mentioned that uh, we had a lot of uh, – of a response from uh, listeners on our Facebook site. Um, we asked them to pose some questions. We have, we're just going to kind of break it here and, and, and dive into a couple from, uh, from correspondents and listeners. And the first one is from uh, our correspondent, Uwe Reith. He's over in Germany. And he says, his question is, is uh, do you have any memories of the recording uh, from Mike Rutherford's album, Small Creeps Day? And, and were you ever asked to be a part of Genesis in any way? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yes and yes. Uh-huh. Really? Uh, Interesting. Yeah. But by the way, I just Google uh, put it to Amazon.com, uh, 801 Live. It came straight up. Wow, that's cool. Okay, cool. So, so they're there. Um, yes, I was asked by Phil Collins back in 1976 to join Genesis. Really? This is before Chester Thompson. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. The problem was I was recording with Jack Bruce at the time, mm-hmm. and we uh, had formed a band called the Jack Bruce Band mm-hmm. uh, with Tony Hymas and Huey Burns. Uh, and so I was kind of already committed, um, and I was really into the music, loved Jack, um, so I had to turn Phil down on his generous offer. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then that's when I remember then Phil asked me, would I – step in for him in, in a band called Brand X. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes and does stuff with Genesis. And I said, yeah, that would be great. Uh, so, Because that, that wasn't a, a long commitment at all. It was kind of a shorter commitment. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And we were rehearsing at this place called The Farmyard up in uh, Amersham, just outside London. And Genesis were in the bigger room. We were in the little room. And Chester Thompson had just flown over and started uh, re- uh, rehearsing with them. Interesting. Yeah, I, didn't, I never knew that. That was that. the answer for Genesis. And then um, yeah, about Small Creeps Day was the other Small question. Small Creeps Day was the first album I recorded using a Tama drum kit. Okay. Really? And it was a Tama Fiber Star. Mm-hmm. 
and David Henshaw was engineering, producing, and we had a great time, absolute great time. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. That's neat. Very cool. And then the uh, other question we have is from a listener named Henning Milky, and uh, he wanted to know if you played uh, on Year of the Knife from the Tears for Fears Seeds of Love album, and if so, how was it working with uh, Roland and Kurt? Yes, I did play on Year of the Knife. Uh, I, I only worked with Roland. Kurt was nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a little frustrating to work with him, hmm. uh, only because very particular. And this was the first record. He, if you remember, Phil Collins actually played on the record. And that was at the uh, uh, pleading of um, David, uh, Dave Bascom. Mm-hmm. who was the engineer, who, by the way, happened to be the second, the assistant engineer on Small Creeps Day. Interesting. Really? <laughs> so I first met David Bascom actually in Sweden at Polar uh, on Small Creeps Day, and then, then we worked after that on various things when he was an engineer, mm-hmm. and then he got me in to play Year of the Knife. Um, Roland was tied, so tied into his Fairlight, he didn't really want real drums at all. Really? And David had to kind of, uh, kind of uh, really wean him off the fairlight and tell him, show him how wonderful it is to get real musicians to play, and he did. Um, but he still kind of had this uh, control uh, attitude with the with the fairlight. Right. See I mean? well, so yeah. um, even though we had we had we had fun and it was a great track, uh, I just found it. Um, just a bit frustrating that the you know he didn't kind of let things happen just naturally you know uh, exactly so many takes it was yeah. ridiculous wow well i know they spent a ton of cash on that album i mean they they the production on that particular album was you know in the seven figures from what i've read and what i understand yeah it yeah. was it was a major production <laughs> I mean, and I, you know it was a great album but i don't think it needed to be that kind of money needed to be spent sure. and all the life kind of squeezed out of it yeah yeah because yeah. i think that's what happens with with those kind of productions you just you you make everything so perfect you just squeeze the life out of it true yeah. true and oh yeah it sounds perfect and everything but and it is a great record but there's some there's something missing dynamics yeah. uh mm-hmm. some mistakes right <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, yeah. you know around, around that time simon i mean it was it was really the how can I say it was? Uh, it was the hot era for, of course. You mentioned the Fairlight, but of course you had the Synclaviers and the S nine thousands, and and the drum machines were all the craze at that time, especially at a very high level, because they were uh, the development from the Lindrum over to the Fairlight sound. It was right. a very high quality, and uh, and maybe you know the producers had had bought onto this technology, and they said, you know, I, that's that's the sound that I want, and anything that was organic was it was out of fashion, wouldn't wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely! Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, we were using lots of long, non-linear reverb. Yeah, uh, on the the, the the EMT, the Flash Gordon reverb, as I call it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the Quantec uh, room simulator. I mean, I loved it. I used a lot of that when I when I started engineering in the eighties. Um, you know, I was way into that sound. Um, yeah, you know, it's what it was. It was a thin, toppy reverby sound yeah did you ever dive into programming or wherever you asked uh, to hey simon you know go ahead and program the drum machines or whatever the drum sounds for these projects i mean how often were you asked to do that not very often but really? you know I, I got into programming the fairlight uh very early on really 
uh, and I was always into uh, kind of the, the technical side of it, yeah. I actually uh, was operating a Fairlight page R and also with Pete Townsend in 87, uh, he had a, um, uh, the NED, the, the, the Synclavier. Yeah. And so I got to programming that too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did a lot of programming it actually. Um, I did more playing, but uh, I, as I was getting into engineering, yeah, of course, I, I was, uh, you know, I was about an inch away from buying a Fairlight. Really interesting. In 1984, because I thought it would be a great production tool. Sure. No and funnily enough, it was my wife at the time. She said, don't get it. <laughs> it won't be around for very long. She says, if you want to get something, buy a tape machine, buy a console. And she was absolutely right. I, I ended up buying a studio yeah. um, and uh, didn't buy the Fairlight. Um, and lo and behold, a few years later, it was replaced by the Fairlight 3. Yeah, exactly. And a few years later, I think you had to pay sixty thousand pounds for it. You couldn't even set <laughs> five thousand. Yeah, you know it was crazy. So, and the only guys that were buying those things were like Sting, because I think he immersed himself into into the Fairlight sound for a while. But you're right; the, it, it had such a. It was so expensive. I mean, that thing must have cost a quarter million dollars. And uh, uh, my goodness, the, the, the Synclavier did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Townsend was very funny. He said. Every single call I make to New England de uh, Digital yeah. cost me £10,000. <laughs> oh <my laughs> because they say, ah, you need this. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Being Pete, he got it, you know. Um, I, I worked a lot with Mike Oldfield, and Mike Oldfield was a Fairlight guy, so that's where I got into the Fairlight. Yeah. And he had a couple of uh, Fairlight 2s, which we actually took out on the road. We were probably one of the first acts to take out a Fairlight on the, on the road to tour with. Wow. That's mm -hmm. neat. So, uh, yeah, we, we took out two Fairlights, which uh, had Page R program for each song. Yeah. And we were running it with an um, uh, external sync, which had a readout okay. for the tempo. Mm -hmm. And the guy, uh, Austrian guy that ran the, the two Fairlights, mm -hmm. and for the next Page R, he would put in um, the tempo, and there would be a start button. A bit like a missile launcher. <laughs> and I looked at him and, and my stick was up in the air and it came down on a symbol. He started the, uh, the Fairlight. Interesting. Amazing. No, count, no countenance or anything. In fact, I didn't even use a click. Really? <laughs> because a lot of the Fairlight was so metronomic anyway mm -hmm. in the programming, we'd, we'd, I didn't need a click. Yeah. So we just played. So that, that was it. Was pretty interesting at the time. Well, you just mentioned Mike Oldfield, and, and on his album Crisis, uh, tell us about this experience. That it that's that was what sort of launched you into the production and recording aspect of music. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, well, he's responsible for getting me involved as an engineer. Yeah. Well, is it true that he left you alone uh, with a mixing console manual during uh, the work on the album? Absolutely. Just let you go. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was uh, I recorded with him for about a week playing drums and for, for, for crisis. And, uh, he got another engineer to engineer the drums, uh, a guy called Nigel Luby. who used mm -hmm. to work with Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and we got on great. And he also saw that I was fairly technically, uh, uh, minded. Um, cause you know, I'd make suggestions about microphones and placement and ideas and stuff. And then, uh, I think about a week later we had a telephone conversation and he was kind of asking me about 
you know, what I did. And I, I said, well, actually, you know, I do quite a bit of production. I'm starting to do quite a bit of production. And he said, well, uh, do you want to come and uh, let's have a, like a trial week and see how we work together? And I went, fine, that'd be great. Um, I then booked an engineer from Air Studios because Mike at the time had an Eve uh, 8108. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wasn't an engineer at that time. And I thought I'd you know, better have an engineer that, that, that knows the, the, the board. Mm -hmm. um, we did a day's work after which he did not get on with the engineer. So he fired him. And after he fired him, came into the control room. I, I was sitting at the console, and he dumped the Neve manual on my lap and said, I'll be back in a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> learn, what, learn what you can. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> it, it was pretty daunting because, um, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't, I, I'd been interested in recording since I was a kid. My yep. mom had two Revox machines, so I understood about recording and about tape and stuff, mm -hmm. but I didn't know much about gain structure or, or how to operate a, a Neve. It had uh, digital routing. Um, he had an, AIM, uh, an Ampex ATR-124, which also had digital routing. So at the time, just to route one microphone to a track on the tape machine was about you know eight button presses. It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, we're so used to it. Right, but, right. Uh, Compared to the experience I'd had, which was quite limited and on a very old, you know, older analog board, we just have a fader and a mic pre and a few buttons at the top to route it to a track, and you put that track in, in ready on the tape machine. That yep. was quite simple, you know? Mm -hmm. With digital routing, it, you know, it, it was pretty amazing, actually. It was great. Well, I know you're passionate about engineering. I, you probably don't – I'm sure you don't remember this, but a few years ago, Eddie and I went up to uh, – Toronto, just north of Toronto, to see Toto do a show. And um, after the concert was over, we kind of hung out with you guys uh, just out in the lounge or something. And I, st I brought up one engineering question to you, and we took you and I talked for about 45 minutes. But in, in, <laughs> I, I, and I could just tell at the time that, you know, you were probably about as passionate for drumming or for engineering as you probably were as, as a musician. And, and you yeah. know, it, it really shows. And, and, you know, obviously we were talking about engineering, and I know that. Uh, you know, in a, in a situation like when you've engineered albums for Toto or whomever, um, you've been responsible for the primary aspect of the engineering. But mm -hmm. when do you ever bring in other guys, say like an Elliot Shiner or someone to uh, to engineer you when you're drumming or any other aspect of the recording? Ooh, not not on my projects, not recently, no. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know, like when you when you're engineering a project that you're involved in, like when you were involved with Toto and you were obviously recording an album. Um, did you have engineering help or assistance from someone when you're actually cutting your parts? Yeah, I, I have an assistant, uh -huh. um, but basically I'm still the engineer, uh, and it was quite it's quite a job because especially with Toto, there's five or six people out in the room, mm -hmm. and I'm busy getting sounds while they're running a song through. And so I don't even get a chance to learn the song only <laughs> by hearing it as an engineer. Right. And I, once I've said everything, I go in and start playing. And I'm still kind of listening to, you know, does the bass have too much compression on it? Right. Uh, are the delays on Luke's guitar balanced mm -hmm. in the phones? You know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Is uh, the tuning of the snare right? Um, but I guess I've been doing it for so long that way, playing and, and engineering at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, I've just got used to it. But it is, a, it's pretty high maintenance. It's pretty stressful, yeah. 
You know, regarding um, the technical aspect of recording and uh, and mixing and that type of thing, um, maybe you can give us through. And you know, event really, we could spend a whole day talking about this, but I'd love to to get a little snapshot from you, Simon, regarding if you can take us through the evolution of how you used to mix your mic. 20 years ago as to how your approach is with the wonderful technology that we have today and how you set up, you know, your miking of, of your own drums. What, what, how has this evolved? Not much. No? <laughs> really? <laughs> it's about the same. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about as to the quality of the mics that pick up so much, the nuances of the recordings. is. I mean, those type of things. Well, I mean, there have been some changes, obviously, but basically – Mic positioning mm-hmm. mm, has changed very little. Mm-hmm. It depends on the mics you use. But, you know, see, a, lot, a long time ago, studios had lots of great mics because they were using them all the time. Mm-hmm. So if I were to go to a studio um, back then, um, you know, I, I'd have a wonderful array of mics to, to, to choose from. You know, a lot of studios had loads of Neumann um, U67s, for example, mm-hmm. yeah. Trident. Um, and they used to use those on TomToms. Um, other studios would have, you know, maybe 414s, mm-hmm. AKG 414s, you right. know. So we always used pretty high-quality mics, uh, and pretty much the miking, the way I mic to drum kit then was a pretty much as way as I do it now. Well, yeah, I'm I'm an engineer too. I'm not a, a music engineer. I'm a post engineer. But the uh, right. but the the one thing about microphones, even if you look, I mean, obviously there might be a misconception that newer technology is going to be better. But a lot of the old microphones are are far and away better than what some of the stuff that's out today. I mean, they were yeah. built so much built so much better, and just I don't know. People, a lot of music engineers I know like to like to uh, turn back and go back to the old ribbon mics or the old you know, like you said, the U67. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny. Um, there are a lot of really good quality, inexpensive microphones. Sure, yeah. Companies now. Mm-hmm. Rode, for example. I'm a big Rode fan. Yeah. Uh, and, but there's many, many. Uh, Audio-Technica. Uh, sure have up their game, too. They're no longer a PA microphone. They make a lot of uh, really high-quality microphones. In fact, I just, uh, right over the kit right now, I'm trying a pair of... Um, uh, the new KSM three fifty three mm-hmm. ribbons that mm-hmm. they just made. Um, there's a big, of course, there's a huge um, fashion for ribbon mic- microphones right mm-hmm. now. Sure, uh, I love the Royal one twenty one for guitar. Uh, recently, I just did a record. I wasn't an engineer; I was playing, and uh, the engineer was using three AEA AEA forty fours. I think they are over the over the top of the uh, drum kit. Mm-hmm. Wow. It, was, it sounded great, you know. Um, the other thing about old microphones is it's a little bit of a romantic, romantic notion, too. Sure. Uh, they do need a lot of care mm-hmm. and attention. Mm-hmm. A lot of microphones, oh, if you put, like, let's say you get six uh, U67s, which I would need. Actually, I need seven for the drum kit if I were using them on the TomToms. I would very much doubt if they all sounded the same. True. Yeah. Uh, you know, the diaphragms are going to be pretty... Um, tired out. Uh, they were a microphone. If people used them, studios used them on drums. They tended to get hit by the drummer. Mm-hmm. You just look at the grills, and they've got stick marks in them. Um, I remember knocking. I don't. Uh, maybe I didn't do this, but I remember the front, the top of a '67 getting knocked off by the drummer once. Um, expensive microphone to replace, right? You know, or fix. But remember, in those days, 
all studios had a full maintenance crew because <laughs> you didn't have <laughs> user. I mean, you had a maintenance guy, right? And it, the shit was always going wrong. <laughs> you know, there's this romantic notion that you know an old Trident uh, uh, TSM board. You know, oh, they were great, but you know what? They had a lot of problems. Yeah. And uh, the you know the, the Helios were great. The old Helios desks, mm-hmm. they were fantastic. But you know, so. It, it, it's it's what's changed i think is that equipment is a lot more robust you don't need a maintenance engineer mm-hmm. um if you have vintage gear you're gonna have to get it fixed yeah. <laughs> now and then <laughs> yeah. um so you know especially as a studio owner i have to be very careful especially with budgets and, and the amount of money one invests in equipment mm-hmm. in in a way i can't afford to to invest in uh, a microphone that's too expensive, right, or too vintage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually prefer kind of the more modern, uh, uh, robust microphones because they serve the purpose just as well. Having said that, um, if somebody brings in a pair of C12s yeah. and throw those over the top of the kit, it'll never sound better. Right, right. They're beautiful. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's it's uh, that that's the issue we're kind of up against. Um, you know, most studios can't afford full-time maintenance now. Yeah, a good pair of C12s will run you about nine grand, though. <laughs> uh, actually, in today's market, they'll be a bit cheaper. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because people can't pay that anymore. That's, yeah. But, <laughs> but you're right. It's going to be up there, yeah. Yeah. You know, to your point, a friend of ours and a past guest, Jeff Lorber, uh, I was in a studio a few years back, and he showed me his console that he was using. And if yeah. I'm correct, it, it was literally still a uh, it was a 30 year old board, and he was uh, or at least a 20 year old board that he was using. And he was showing me that he says this thing is uh, it's just such a workhorse that it it just has so much more life in it that he yeah. ke- keeps on using it. You know. Well, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You exactly. Know? Right. Yeah, and it's Steve Lukather in his uh, the Steakhouse Studio. He's the 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 uh, board they have in there. I don't remember. I think it's a Nave, an old Nave. It's a Nave. Yeah, yeah. And it's the one that we, it's it actually was shipped here from the UK, and it was the album, yeah. it was the uh, board that they cut Dark Side of the Moon on. So, wow. uh, uh, from so from, from Abbey Road three. What's that? It was from Abbey Road then. I, I that's I, right. I, yeah, I, I worked on that board then a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, we probably cut uh, there and back on that board then. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Jeff Beck, yep. who can't stop. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember it, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the Neves actually in this country are shipped over from studios in in, uh, in, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, I walked into uh, Bearsville, which was a few years ago. They had the Who's Old Neve desk. Yeah. The, the RAM was still uh, painted on it. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so yeah, sometimes you look at desks, you kind of recognize them. You go, "Hang on, I know this desk." <laughs> <laughs> you know, in I want to interrupt you. Um, on in '78, you mentioned Jeff Beck. You met up with Jeff Beck and uh, Stanley Clark, and you guys uh, really hit it off then, that uh, really well, especially with Stanley, that you toured with him a little bit too. Yes, I did. Well, after we did that tour in Japan in '78, uh, Stanley asked me to join his band. So I came over to the States and uh, we rehearsed and then we did a big tour over here, which was great. And then I recorded with him too, uh, Rocks, Pebbles and Sand. Yeah. You also wrote a little bit, uh, you mentioned just a few minutes ago of to- Tony Hymas, but uh, mm-hmm. you teamed up together uh, just shortly after that and did some work, uh, some writing for for Jeff. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, um, we had two keyboard players when I, when I joined the band. Uh, Jeff's player, Max Middleton, and Stanley's player, um, Mike Garson. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was that Jeff didn't really get on with Mike Garson and Stanley didn't really get on with Max Middleton. 
<laughs> so, so the chemistry wasn't there. <laughs> it, well, it was a little fraught. We then figured out that, okay, Max plays Jeff's tunes, and then Mike plays Stanley's tunes. <laughs> <laughs> and that worked out just fine. Huh? But it didn't work out very well at all, so <laughs> they ended up both getting fired. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you and know, um, then I walked in. I was fairly new to, to, the, to the scenario, and I walked in. We were rehearsing at the Rainbow, Finsbury Park. And I uh, went up to the dressing room um, and walked in. And, and Jeff and his manager, Ernest, were having a discussion about what the hell are they going to do. We've got a tour booked in two weeks. We don't have a keyboard player. And I turned around and I said, uh, I think I can help you out. And they said, what? <laughs> i got the best guy you'll, you'll ever find. What's his name? I said, Tony Hymas. Don't know him. I said, no, you don't. I said, <laughs> But if you like, I'll give him a call. So it's actually very funny. I called Tony Hymas. I said, Tony, yes, mate. How are you doing? Fine. You want to come out on the road with Stanley Clark and Jeff Beck? He said, "Uh, let me look at my diary. Uh, I've got a uh, jazz gig at the, uh, at some pub, you know, the Plough Twickenham (laughs) on the 28th. Uh, I think I've got a recital with Cleo Lane. The Queen, the Queen Elizabeth Hall on the ninth. Uh, hmm. I said, Tony, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> of course, he wanted to do it. He was of just pissing about, you know, <laughs> just being Tony. Yeah. And uh, so Stanley flew over for one rehearsal to meet Tony, and he was incredible. They both loved him, and that's, uh, and actually, with Jeff, that became a kind of a long relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still writing stuff with Jeff. You know, that's so, so cool. Uh, that's yeah, that, that's the story behind that one. Hey, uh, Simon, I want I want to jump ahead and talk about uh, your solo albums, I, and I think you've recorded six: uh, Protocol, Force Majeure, uh, Symbiosis, Another Lifetime, Out of the Blue, and Vantage Point. That's right. And uh, one of the albums that Eddie and I are really familiar with, uh, it's actually it's one of my personal favorites of yours, is Another Lifetime. And that right. was recorded back in 99. And I think you re-released that recently, right? That was recorded in, uh, no, 97. 97? Okay. okay. Yeah. But yeah. didn't, didn't uh, you release that again here recently? Yes, I, I re-released it. Yeah. Well, after the, you know, the record company kind of, uh, what do they do? Well, let's just stop sending royalty statements, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so I went in there and... Uh, claimed all my uh, rights and uh, basically have the rights to all my records except for one force majeure which is a little nebulous about uh-huh. who owns that uh, but yes and i'm slowly kind of remastering maybe finding some extra material and re-releasing them yeah yeah and another uh, actually another record um that I really enjoy because I'm a, a really huge uh, jazz fanatic is Vantage Point. That uh, it where you brought in actually a few of our guests. Uh, um, our past guest uh, Brandon Fields was on this, and uh, right. and also, uh, but your collaborator mainly was Jeff Babco. What a, what a yep. neat album that was. That, that was really fun, and you know we did a tour. We did a short European tour, seven dates, yeah, with that band, 
Um, and we had a ball. Absolutely. It was wonderful. Yeah. Well, you were doing some fun stuff. I mean, things that I, I honestly I never really expected, uh, but it was so fresh. I mean, you sent, you did things like Miles and Freddie Hubbard, Wayne Shorter stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, and even your drumming styles, they were just, you know, Elvin Jones style. And, and, and you were just, uh, it, it, it sounded as if you guys were really having a fun time, especially when uh, Walt Flowers uh, joined in. It was uh, neat chem- musical chemistry. I enjoyed that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. A lot of people, especially in the States, they don't know that I play like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, you know, I started playing Dixieland. <laughs> That's the thing. I kind of started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not so alien. Um, it was, uh, and, and I really wanted to do something different uh, from both a production and recording point of view mm-hmm. and a playing point of view. Uh, and that was all recorded in my house. Yeah. Um, oh, really? When it was a studio. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Let's take a, a short pause again and take a listen to a track from that Vantage Point album. And uh, this one is called Double Take.
Well, you know, we I have another question from uh, our, our same correspondent in Germany, Uwe, and he's yeah. he has a question. He says your uh, your setup on your kit is reminiscent of Billy Cobham's. Did yeah. uh, did he have an impact on your drawing uh, development uh, over the years? Absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah. When I first heard Billy, I went, "Oh, that's fantastic." He kind of. Uh, you know, he just uh, filled my imagination. That's exactly what, what I wanted to do, you know. The approach was just fantastic. The sound, the clarity, the power, loved it. So, yeah, he was a huge influence. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I think you've probably been asked this a lot, but tell us about, you know, your sort of open-handed drumming. I mean, of course, you, you play your hi-hat with your left and your snare mm-hmm. with your right. And, mm-hmm. and is that something that uh, you sort of – you know, did you learn that way? Is that how you started playing originally, or oh. is it something you sort of morphed into? No, I, I taught myself to do that in 1975. Mm-hmm. Um, up until that time, I was playing just regular right-handed. Was it a particular reason? I mean, did it just feel more comfortable to do it that way for you? There were, there were a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, because Billy Cobham did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just thought, wow, what a cool way of playing. Yeah. But the other thing was playing a double kit, the hi-hat was always a problem. Mm. And if I could play with the left hand on the hi-hat, I could push the hi-hat down so it was much lower. Gotcha. Therefore, I could get the tom-tom, the 10-inch tom or 12-inch much closer. Interesting. Yeah. So it affected so the it was, accessibility. It was an ergonomic situation, you uh-huh. know? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I'm jumping right ahead to uh, PSP, um, and you know the, the PSP is is a is a project that you've uh, put together with uh, Philippe Sais and, and Pino Palladino, and I I think uh, you've released a 2009 project. It was a live recording, yeah. uh, with those guys, and it's it's you know it's a live jazz fusion sort of funk you know effort yep. that allowed the three of you. Uh, I guess you guys toured in Europe in 2009 as well with that project. We had a great tour in Europe, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, twenty-something dates, and uh, we're we're putting another one together right now. We're going to play a few U.S. dates. We're going to play the Blue Note in New York. That's awesome. Uh, Yoshi's in Oakland and the Roxy in L.A. And then we're going to fly straight over to Europe and do another 20 dates over there. That's wonderful. Yeah, like we mentioned, PSP uh, released a live album in late 2009. And uh, we're going to take a short break and we want to check out a track from that release. And this is called What's Wrong With You? Thank you. 
So here's an interesting question. Does, does the PSP really stand for Phillips Sace Palladino or Palladino Sace <laughs> Phillips? I mean, or does that depend on who I'm asking? Or, 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 or Philippe Simon Pino. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I like that better. <laughs> really, we, we hate Sony because of the PlayStation. 
<laughs> That's right. Every time you Google PSP, what do you get? You That's get right. Exactly. That's right. But, uh, we, we, so we knew that was going to be a problem, but we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll just go with it. Um, it just seems to work. Yeah. And the funny thing is, we're, we're all born in 1957. Jeez. That's interesting. So we're the same age. Uh, Philippe uh-huh. is two days before me, and Pino's much younger. He's like October or something. <laughs> way, yeah. way younger, much younger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- this is an absolutely phenomenal performance, and I, uh, uh, you know, I congratulate. Uh, we're so glad that you're going to be doing this again and taking us on the road. You know. Great. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's a it's a fun band, and uh, we've done that one live album. We've recorded three songs, which are available as downloads, mm-hmm. which is kind of on our way to recording an album. Uh, it's just the time and the fact that Pino lives in England. It's it's a little tricky to get us all together. Um, it really takes a major planning, and uh, you know it's a bit of a headache. But once we're there, we're, we're there, and it's and it sounds great. You know? Exactly. Another IMC listener. Uh, his name is Darren Benyon. He wants mm-hmm. to know. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, Simon, about your playing at the Baked Potato. It's a small venue, but so many neat gigs there. Tell us a little about your experiences there. Oh well, it's just our local jazz club. Yeah. Uh, it's been there for years, and uh, it's a great place to play. What I love about it is that I turn up and play with different people, mm-hmm. read charts, and and just have fun. Yeah, I've been it's there a few so times. It's it's a it's such a great place. And you're right. It's just you know you could walk down there any night of the week and see just phenomenal players. You know yep. the, the best yep. LA has to offer, just in a really small, intimate setting. And it's a great place. And I love the smell of the baked potatoes, even as you're standing yeah. outside getting to get in line. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's really cool, and uh, I love taking kind of different projects in there and just having fun. You know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Toto a little bit, a subject that many of our listeners are very, very interested in. In uh, 1992, obviously, you were called in to fill in for our good friend, rest his heart, uh, you know, Jeff Procaro after his yeah. passing. Um, were you the only drummer that Luke and the guys had contacted? Yeah. Um, as far as I know, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. They, uh, they had a meeting up at the office, and the meeting was, what do we do? Do we carry on with this tour, or do we, do we cancel it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there are lots of reasons why they shouldn't cancel, cancel it and carry on. So the ne- next question was from the manager, said, who do you want to get on drums? And they both thought about, well, they all thought about it. Well, three of them. It was only Mike, Dave, and Luke. And Luke and Dave both came up with my name at the same time. Well, you know, I was thinking, this is a question that we have from uh, another listener, Tony Ramirez, and it's actually something I w- I've always thought about too, but... You know, obviously you knew Luke. You knew the guys in the band, obviously, prior to joining, you know, joining the band or, or you know, being contacted to, to take Jeff's place. But how well did you know Toto's material when you joined the band? And what was the process of, of learning and preparation for this, this tour that you had to suddenly go on? Well, I didn't I, – I knew Luke. I'd met, my, uh, I'd met uh, David Page once. I'd met Mike uh, Picaro once. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know them very well. Mm-hmm. I also didn't really know what Toto had been up to in the last few years. Yeah. Because most of my work was, funnily enough, in the States. And, of course, they didn't really do much in the States. They were uh, more in Europe. So we kind of missed, you know, missed each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I bumped into them was at the uh, Phillips Hollow in Dusseldorf. And that would have been in 80-something. Mm-hmm. 87, 88 or something. So I really wasn't aware of what they were up to at all. When they sent me the material, um, and they also sent me Kingdom of Desire, I thought, wow, that's a really good album. That's fantastic. 
so I was really excited. Uh, I knew the music was was going to be great, and yeah. of course I knew the hits. You know, I'd heard right. that, but I really didn't know the the music at all. So, uh, and I was also pretty busy at the time. I basically the flight over. Uh, I had a a DAT machine, portable DAT machine. Mm-hmm. They sent me a DAT with all a couple of DATs, all those songs on, mm-hmm. a pair of headphones, and literally a bag of batteries. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. <laughs> I sat on Virgin Atlantic's uh, right at the front of the plane and just uh, drank champagne and um, learned and did charts. That's, awesome. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, you know, how was it? I mean, if you didn't know the guys that well, what was it about Simon Phillips that they wanted? I mean, how were you the go-to guy at that point? I think the way it was explained to me was they did not want to have somebody come in and copy Jeff. Right, okay. Because no one could do that. It would just never be the same. Mm -hmm. They wanted somebody who was a bit more individual, had had their own style, and also had a bit of a following in their own right. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think the other thing is at the time, Luke was really more into the rock and roll thing. Definitely. Kingdom of Desire, got all his tattoos and... (laughs) He, he had turned into more of a rocker, and he wanted to take Toto into the more heavy, I wouldn't say metal, but heavy rock uh, arena sure. than it had previously been. Mm-hmm. And I think that also tied up with, with kind of my style uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think um, that, that was the choice they made, you know? Yeah. So you had to really sacrifice quite a bit. Of, you had to sort of uh, flip the coin from your heavy schedule because you were living in England and uh, to to join Toto. Um, at what point? Well, go ahead, go ahead. It's kind of interesting because it, it was actually very strange how the whole thing came up. Um, before that call came through, I was already going through a divorce. I had already made my plans to leave England and move to Los Angeles. Really? It was interesting timing, yeah. That, that was in, uh, I had started the, those uh, proceedings about a year earlier. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult to do when you do it on your own. If you are an artist that uh, is signed to a record company or publishing company, they do all that work. Yeah. But when you're not and you do it yourself, it's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was pretty tough. I had two, I had a, uh, two, Two lawyers in, in New York, one was a music biz lawyer, one was a immigration lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but by that time, my uh, visa had come through. Uh, my, I'd incorporated uh, in the States, so I had a, a corporation here. Um, and it was just a question of uh, when do I go? Buying a ticket and literally going. Mm-hmm. Um, this just kind of speeded up the process because one day, one evening... Luke called, he was on the phone, and it was at that meeting I told you about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just really uh, taken aback. You know, I was like, wow, okay. Um, I was just about to start the uh, Big Country album, too, the next day. Really? So within uh, uh, three weeks or four weeks, that was it. I, I was gone. Wow. I just walked out the door and never, never went back. Well, you know, the interesting thing about this, and maybe a lot of uh, Toto fans in general probably don't think about this, but you've now been the drummer of Toto longer for a longer tenure than Jeff Percaro had a, had, a, had the ability to be, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. So you've been with the band for 18 years now, so. I know. Well, you know, when, when Toto decided to uh, 
to, to hang it up in, in 2008, it was obviously a, a sad day for everyone, you, you know, especially the fans. In, I, well, I shouldn't say especially the fans. I'm sure it was a sad day for the band as well. But, you know, you obviously guys, all you all went your separate ways. But, uh, and it, you know, obviously there was talk that, it, you know, Luke especially was pretty vocal about the fact that, you know, this was it, you know, no more Toto, no more tours, you know, no more hold the line. <laughs> you know, he, he, I don't want to play that song again. But, but yeah. obviously last year, uh, last summer, you guys got together again with sort of a different lineup, uh, you know, bringing David Page back and, and Joseph Williams and Steve Percaro and went out over to Europe and did a couple of weeks of festival gigs that went over amazingly well. I mean, you yep. know, the response was just was huge. And obviously, you guys are going to go back out again this summer. And uh, yep. And obviously, this did some wonderful things for Mike Perkar. I was all, you know, for the benefit of Mike and his family. And uh, I'm just curious about, you know, what's going to, you know, what's happening this summer. These this this new lineup of shows is is this sort of a continuation of last summer? Is this still in benefit for you know for, for Mike Perkar? Is that is that the goal or is that the idea? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think. You see, we all have different views on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, I I, I wanted a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Luke, he wanted a break, but the only way he could have a break was to uh, stop Toto completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think it was really quite so necessary. Uh, it was very necessary that we all had a break. We'd been going at it ridiculously. Oh yeah, sure. And uh, and also because of Mike, and because you know there weren't many people left of the original band anyway. It just, it seemed like we were beating our heads against a brick wall, you know. Um, having said that, the gigs were still great. And, uh, you know, the last DVD we did, Falling In Between, was really, it was a wonderful show. Yeah, it you was, know? it was. Um, but I just think everybody, you know, had a different idea about how, how it should be. Uh, I always thought that the band would, would come back together and play because, uh, you know, that's just what you do, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it took Luke, you know, he, he got a few things out of his system and then he just realized, well, actually, no, maybe this would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. So, but in terms of Toto being a, an ongoing scenario, no, it, it, it's over as a, as a band that's going to go in and make a record and do that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. But, uh, but obviously, we're still wanted. The, the shows are there uh, for a few weeks out of the year. If we want to go and do it, we should go and do it. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, personally. Well, as a, as a fan, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, the old adage of never say never. I, I'm, you know, we're all hoping that, you know, somehow, <laughs> you know, in our little fantasy land, you'll, you'll get back in the studio one day and, and decide to make that one final record. But, you know, that's, that's just, that's a push from Eddie and me, I guess, and everybody listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, so, go ahead. You know, and also the business has changed too. You know, sure. it doesn't really make a lot of sense to make a record anyway. Yeah, You're from right. that point of view, for us, mm-hmm. you know, because it's uh, it's just the, it's really changed the way everything is. We're much more of a live commodity now. Mm-hmm. You know, Simon, a little while ago, or actually a little more than a year ago, me and uh, Rick. Um, we were invited to attend the um, induction of the Musicians Hall of Fame, where Toto was uh, inducted in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, and uh, it was so nice 
and refreshing to see Steve Porcaro up there. All the all the kids there, the grandkids or the the, the sons of of the band members were there. But right. when I saw Steve playing up on stage and uh, with Luke and the guys and and David Hungate, uh, I saw a really glimmer in, in Steve's eye, and I was wondering, man, is he ever going to play out there with with Toto? And the next thing I know is that he's playing in in on the European tour. How, yeah. Tell me a little bit about a little bit about uh, what you saw in in Steve because it had been a long a long time since he had toured. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, well, he loved it. I mean, he, he had an absolute ball. Sure. Um, and uh, you know, it's a, it's the same old thing. It's like the same issues. The 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 the, the reason he left before, you know, some of those issues are probably still there. Um, but now he's just like he's over it. You know, he's, he's like okay, that that's. I just needed to get out at that time, but I'm here. I can enjoy it. I can have a ball. Right. That's really all it is, you know? Yeah, great. Well, just one, this is another hopeful, uh, you know, wish from a, from a fan because I am a fan, but mm-hmm. is there any chance that, you know, a few dates might be uh, played here in the States? Not at the moment. Not at the moment. Okay. Well, we'll just keep thinking positively. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Simon, before we started talking, before we actually started the interview, you told me that you're actually sitting in the studio now and you're mixing the DVD for um, uh, this. I guess this, there's a show coming out from this or a DVD coming out from this past tour this past summer, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how's that coming along? Yeah. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm macheting my way through it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was uh, uh, Copenhagen we recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not our best show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that's always the way when you that's record the way, it. That's it, the way it generally works. never is the best show. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's uh, it's 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 a challenge. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's coming along. Um, I, I'm always very. Uh, um, I, I'm not one that kind of gets. I, I'm not the one that goes. Oh, it's great, fantastic, it sounds wonderful. You know. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll always play the other side you know yeah. <laughs> because because uh, i know what the the uh, the what the challenge is it's, sure. it's, it's not easy it's a bit of a tricky uh tricky one yeah um just for various reasons um you know a little bit of it technical um so it's a, it's a, certainly a challenge yeah absolutely a challenge but uh the ones i've done so far i think it's sounding really good uh, nobody's heard them yet i won't let anybody uh hear them just yet yeah um Oh so, come on, come on! Do it. Let it. Let it inside music cast. Uh, <laughs> release. <laughs> Just teasing. I think I have David Page soloed at the moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, t- tell us about a timetable. <laughs> tell Sorry? us about. No, tell us about a timetable on this project. I mean, do you have a? Uh, is it just? Uh, is it going to be released as soon as you finish, or is there like a projected date? Oh well, the, the release date is going to be next year. Okay. Um, I don't even know what the release date is, yeah. uh, but I know that I really have to get finished with it before the end of, well, actually before Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, next year I, I'm going to be so busy, um, I won't be able to do, do this. But also at some point I'm going to need some video, um, and we haven't <laughs> even started editing video yet. <laughs> so, but at the moment I don't need it because really um, video is kind of the last thing. Sure. You, you, which you run once you once you get most of your mixes done, you can start running in sync. Uh, because basically, as long as you have the audio, you got the what's going on. You, you know, it doesn't really matter what what happens on the screen. Right. 
uh, you just mix to, 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 to what's there. Sure. But obviously, once uh, a video editor gets, gets uh, chopping it up, then obviously a timeline goes. So, but you're only dealing with mixes, not with multi-track at that point. So uh, I'm, I'm fine to carry on without any video until, until I really get finished, you know. Is this uh, going to be just a standard def release, or are we looking at Blu-ray here? Uh, don't know. It's a different company now. Okay. It's not Eagle Rock. Eagle Rock, we did, the last two came out on Blu-ray, which uh, were fantastic, actually. Right. Yeah, they were. Uh, this is a uh, Dutch company. Um, uh, I think, you know, Blu-ray has become such an accepted format now, mm-hmm. very popular. They probably will, yeah. So it was, sh- I'm assuming it was shot in high def, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, was, I... You know, most videos these days are shot in high def because mm-hmm. the camera's... Are so small and so cheap comparatively, you know, compared to what it used to be. Um, I mean, we didn't even run sync now nowadays. You know, yeah. you used to have to uh, run run timecode, right? And uh, in fact, uh, falling in between was actually uh, yeah, they were, they were running timecode on that one. Uh, but with the way with SD cards and the way cameras are now, um, you don't even need that. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, we we know you're busy. We know you've got to get this done before Christmas, and we don't want to be responsible uh, as the ones who held you up from getting your timetable done because Toto fans would kill us. They sure would. <laughs> but we appreciate the hour you've spent with us. We really have, and I know our, our listeners are going to really dig this interview. So, Great. Simon, thanks. Uh, just one last quick question. Um, outside of working on this, uh, this you know, editing or, or finishing this DVD, yeah. uh, what other projects do you have coming up? What else do we have forward to look uh, forward from you? Um, I've just done a record with a Japanese uh, female uh, piano player called Hiromi. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know um, Hiromi. Yeah, they, she called me out of the blue, and she asked uh, if I would play on a record with Anthony Jackson on bass. Okay, oh, that's cool. And uh, we got together, and we just uh, literally just two weeks ago just finished it. Um, and I'm going to be going out on the road with her next year for a little bit. Well, that's that's excellent. It's so that's so odd because I just recently f- saw her on Facebook and I was listening to some clips of her music and she's she's right. wonderful. She's beautiful, she's uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a great album. I don't think I've played so many drum solos on a record before. Wow, that's cool. Wow. So it's going to be it's real musicians album. Real, you know, dr- drums are going to love it. Awesome, awesome. Well, yeah. Simon, thanks so much for spending the time with with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so My much. Pleasure. All right, and take care, and, and happy holidays to you, too. All right, and to you, too. All right, take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Mm-hmm. See you later. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Special thanks to Simon Phillips for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Uwe Reif. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside MusicCast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside MusicCast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast.